Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them so much. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for February 21st through 27th, 2022. This is covering Genesis chapters 24 through 27. And now, let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Oh, this is going to be exciting. Yay! And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 29 minutes, 40 seconds. And what would that be daily? 4 minutes, 14 seconds. Excellent. Here we've got time codes if you want to go chapter by chapter, or buckle up, we'll talk about them all together. Before we start, I wanted to talk about another resource. If, by the way, you're just joining us or recently have joined us, please go back to episode one for this Old Testament season because we talked about a lot of great resources that can help you get the most out of your Old Testament studies. We'll be adding to those resources as we go along. And because we'll be talking about a really remarkable woman today, I thought I'd mention Heather Farrell's Women in the Scriptures website. She has done a really wonderful job of putting together articles and information and observations about the incredible women in all the scriptures, New Testament, Old Testament, Church History, and Book of Mormon. We'll put a link to her website in the description, but it's womeninthescriptures.com. I think it's a great project, and I recommend it. So let's get started with Genesis chapter 24. Remember that the Lord had promised Abraham and Sarah that their son Isaac would receive the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant and that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Isaac's descendants. Well, if Isaac's going to have descendants, he needs a wife. Mm. But where do you find such a wife? It's important to remember that women were a very powerful influence in the Old Testament. Children stayed with their mother until they were 12, both boys and girls, and she instructed them. Women were responsible for the care and discipline of their children, and they taught them their religious ideologies and their duties and responsibilities to God. And then at age 12, the boys would go on and apprentice with their fathers and learn what it is to be a man and take on those responsibilities. So women were incredibly influential. Here's a couple of scriptures to elaborate on this idea. In Exodus 34:16, as Moses explains to the Israelites that they should worship no other gods, he warns them that if they make a covenant with the Canaanites, they, the Canaanites, will turn them to their gods. He says in verse 16, and thou take of their daughters, Canaanites, unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods. So if you marry women who have a different religious point of view than you, in this case the Canaanites, they will shift you and your whole family to their gods. In Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 and 2, it's the Moabite women who led the Israelites to worship their gods. In Nehemiah 13, 23 to 24, and we'll add 26 in there too. In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. 
And then he locks his point home in verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish, meaning foreign, women cause to sin, by which he means to worship other gods. So even the great King Solomon fell to that influence. In Proverbs 1 verse 8, it says, My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother. In Proverbs 31.1, it says, The words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. Does this give you a sense of how powerful and influential women were? So if we're going to choose a woman that will join Isaac as the inheritor of the Abrahamic covenant, this choice is of extreme importance. So let's take a look at how this was approached. In chapter 24, let's start with verse 1. And Abraham was old and well stricken in age. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Now, a quick note on verse 2, where it says, Eldest servant. Note the footnote on that. It takes you to Genesis chapter 15, verse 2. We talked about that in a previous lesson. The name of the servant is Eliezer of Damascus. Also note an interesting Joseph Smith translation correction, that phrase, hand under thigh. Of the sources I've read, the meaning of this is only speculatory. The Joseph Smith translation changes it to hand under my hand. I think the most we can say is that the trusted servant's hand under Abraham's hand or thigh indicates Eliezer serving under Abraham's authority and represents a sacred vow. Yeah. That seems clear. Yep. Good point. Let's go on in verse 4. But thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. Now, the journey that he's talking about from Abraham's location in the land of Canaan to Mesopotamia, where his relatives lived, was a distance of approximately 550 miles using ancient routes. This journey would require substantial time, around three weeks in one direction, I might add, as well as effort and provisions. So think of the effort that is going into finding the right spouse. It's really staggering. There's a quote that we wanted to include from an Enzyme article in February 1999. This is from President Gordon B. Hinckley in an article named Life's Obligations, where he says, quote, There is no substitute for marrying in the temple. It is the only place under the heavens where marriage can be solemnized for eternity. Don't cheat yourself. Don't cheat your companion. Don't shortchange your lives. Marry the right person in the right place at the right time, end quote. That is good counsel. And we see that illustrated, how important that is in this story. So in verse 10, the good servant Eliezer leaves Abraham taking 10 camels and traveling to Nahor in Mesopotamia. Now, when this gives you details, pay attention. It says 10 camels. Let's carefully explore the details in verses 11 through 21 and see if we could paint a picture of what's happening. 
we don't always get specific details in our stories. So when they're there, we should really pay attention, look for details, adjectives, verbs, etc., and we'll help. Jay brings up a really good point. I mentioned back when we were studying Genesis 11 that according to the genealogies listed in Genesis, Abraham was born 1,938 years after the fall of Adam. So those first 11 chapters are covering well over 2,000 years of human history. From Genesis 12 to 50, we're covering maybe 200 years. Moses clearly wanted to spend a lot of time around Abraham and his immediate descendants. You can almost picture him saying, well, let's see, the earth was created, man became mortal, man became wicked. I think some people were translated, we had a flood. Ah, here it is, Abraham. <laughs> so let's play close attention. And you might remember when we studied the Book of Mormon, the same type of thing happened with Mormon in his abridgment where there was clearly times where he covered long periods of time very quickly and other times where he really slowed down and wanted you to pay attention. Yeah, that's so true. And it really is a great thing to recognize about Genesis. What is the purpose? We talked about this at the beginning. It's not to give you a history of the world. It's to bring you up to Moses's day. And one of the most important things that happened was what's happening in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, known as the patriarchs. So let's take a look at verses 11 through 14 and look at what happens before the lady of the hour arrives. Her name is Rebecca. We'll meet her in just a little bit. In verse 11, And he, speaking of the servant, Eliezer, made his camels to kneel down without the city by a well of water at the time of the evening, even the time that women go out to draw water. So what do you already see in this scene? It's evening. All right, that's a great detail. And that this is when women go out to draw water. So we learn a little something about the life of women. It's probably one of the last chores in a very busy workday for women. They're likely tired and ready for rest. All right, so that helps us set the stage. Notice that Eliezer made his camels kneel down. He and his 10 camels have traveled for weeks, and now... He has them kneel down. But in the next verse, we see that he is going to offer prayer. I know it's ridiculous, but I can't help but visualize this as a family prayer moment. Okay, camels, it's been a long trip. Come on in. Let's all kneel down together and I'll offer a prayer. I know that's not how it was, but I don't know. I can't help but see it that way. Well, I don't see any problem seeing it that way. Verse 12, and he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water, and let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, Let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed to thy servant Isaac, and thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. Now, quick note, we may have seen this a few times before, but we haven't talked about it. Notice in verse 12, that word S-H-E-W is show. That's an old way to spell show, but it's pronounced show. And if that seems strange to you, think about the word so, S-E-W. It's pronounced the same way. 
Also notice that Eliezer seems to be guided by the Holy Spirit as to what to ask, because clearly what he's asking for is going to happen. So whoever he asks drink of, and she offers for him and his camels, that's the girl. Well, and think about that. I mean, that's quite a thing to look for. And what does that say about the person who would say something like that, offer something like that? But it also, as John was pointing out, it really helps us to see the faithfulness, not just to his master Abraham, but Eliezer's faithfulness to God and trust in him. So let's introduce the lady in verse 15. And it came to pass, before he had done speaking, that behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. So right there we have another detail, not only her lineage, but she's holding a pitcher on her shoulder. There's different ways to carry water in the ancient world. A leather satchel might be one of them. But in this case, it's a solid pitcher, otherwise she wouldn't have carried it on her shoulder. Going on in verse 16, And the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin, neither had any man known her. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. So what do we learn in these verses? Notice the Joseph Smith translation for verse 16. Neither had any man known the like unto her. I like that. This will relate to Eliezer's response after this upcoming interaction. If we jumped ahead to verse 21, it says that he wonders at her. So let's watch going forward what she does that makes him in awe of her and why it would be said of her that no man has known the like unto her. She is remarkable, unique, and to be wondered at. Okay, verse 17. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Let me, I pray thee, drink a little water of thy pitcher. Now, going back to 16 for a minute, notice that she went down to the well. So wherever the well is, it's down from where they are. And then she filled her pitcher, and with the heavy pitcher, she comes up out of the well. So what an imposition for someone to say, hey, I know you just brought that water up, but give me some. In this area of the world, there are different ways that we could have a well that is down. It could simply be downhill from the trough, but it could also be that it is at the bottom of a large, almost like a funnel, a large area of earth that's been dug out to get down to the water level. So it's more easy to get the water. If so, she would have to go down almost in a spiral path down to the bottom and there, there would be the well, and she would get the water, and she would come up and out. However it is, there is a down to the well and up from the well. So going on to verse 18, and she said, drink, my Lord. And she hasted. Notice that. She wasn't like, oh, fine. She hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. All right, well, that's half of it. Verse 19, and when she had done giving him drink... She said, I will draw water for thy camels also until they have done drinking. Now, wait a minute. What he was looking for was already remarkable. A woman that would voluntarily get water for his camels. But she voluntarily adds a little piece on the end here, which I think is quite remarkable. It's not just that she's going to get some water for the camels. 
she has committed herself at the end of a long workday with other responsibilities for this stranger to get water until his camels can drink no more. And remember, 10 camels. So how much water can a thirsty camel drink? Ooh, numbers. Well, a single thirsty camel has been known to drink up to 30 gallons or 100 liters of water in a single visit to a well. Some suggest even twice that much. Remember, that's one camel. He had 10 camels, so Rebecca may have drawn as much as 300 gallons of water. I don't know how big her pitcher was, but I'm sure that meant at least 100 trips between the well and the trough. That's remarkable. Now, let's change those numbers just a little bit. Let's say we took one of the lowest numbers. The lowest number I could find for a thirsty camel would be 20 gallons. So let's take the lowest number camels might drink, and let's take the highest she might be able to carry, because John's estimating it at like three gallons. And remember, it's like a ceramic pitcher she's carrying on her shoulder. But let's say she's a superstar and could do four gallons per trip. That's still 50 trips. So either way, however you work those numbers, she is incredible. And then look at what she does in verse 20. And she hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again unto the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. If she ran unto the well from the trough, then what does that say about the distance between the well and the trough? There's space for running. So again, we don't know all the details, but these pieces of it not only show her attitude and her character, but they also give us a sense that this isn't just her leaning over one place, grabbing water, pouring it into a trough. This is a major thing that she offered to do. This is more than Rebecca, say, handing Eliezer a cup saying, yeah, you can drink. Right. This is a lot more. (laughs) It's huge. It's huge. No wonder in verse 21 that he wondered at her. No wonder that it says in the Joseph Smith translation, no man knew the like unto her. It was evidently time for her evening workout, and workout (laughs) she did. yeah. So, verses 21 through 25, the servant now has his interaction with Rebecca, asks her about her family, learned that she was exactly of the lineage he's looking for. She's the granddaughter of Abraham's brother, Nahor. And in the next few verses, 26 to 49, Abraham's servant was invited to eat with Rebecca's family. He told the family that Abraham had directed him to find a suitable woman for Isaac to marry among Abraham's relatives and that the Lord had led him to Rebecca. There's a lot of repetition in this chapter. As he recounts the story of what happened, look for how many times he mentions God's involvement. Verse 27, blessed be the Lord God, the Lord led me. Verse 31, Laban calls Eliezer blessed of the Lord. Verse 35, the Lord hath blessed my master greatly. Verse 40, Abraham told Eliezer that the Lord will send his angel with thee. Verse 42, Eliezer prayed to God for help in this matter. And then in verse 48, the Lord God led him in the right way. Going on in verse 50, then Laban and we learn in verse 29 that Laban is Rebekah's brother, and Bethuel, who we learn in verse 15, is her father, answered and said, The thing proceedeth from the Lord. We cannot speak unto thee bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before thee. Take her and go, and let her be thy master's son's wife, as the Lord hath spoken. 
And it came to pass that when Abraham's servant heard their words, he worshiped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. So faithful. I love that everyone's recognizing God's hand in this. And so, yes, brother and father give their permission. Notice in verse 28, though, that this is all happening in her mother's house. I've heard it described that it's not uncommon to have a kind of a family compound where you have multiple houses for various people within, say, a walled-off area. So in this case, this would be the mother's house, and this is where it's all happening. Those involved in helping secure this union, like in verses 53 and 55, it seems to indicate that her mother and her brother are primarily involved, although we saw her father give permission too in verse 51. The whole family is invested in her future. But they are concerned when the next morning, Eliezer is ready to go and bring Rebekah to his master's house. Let's take a look in verse 55. And her brother and her mother said, Let the damsel abide with us a few days, at the least ten. After that she shall go. And he said unto them, Hinder me not, seeing the Lord hath prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. And they called Rebekah and said unto her, Wilt thou go with this man? And she said, I will go. And they sent away Rebekah their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. Do you see a Nephi characteristic in her in verse 58? Yeah. Or actually, more accurately, Nephi being like her. Ah, good point. Since she lived before him. She says, I will go. That's what Abraham was doing too. Rebecca is very much the Abraham in the story. An arranged marriage may have involved the wisdom of those that love the young bride, but it's ultimately her choice. Do you see in Rebecca an Abraham type character? She's willing to leave her homeland and all that she knows to follow the Lord's will and covenant with him. She's willing to be led to a promised land just like Abraham, and in the future, others will be like her, like, say, Nephi, Lehi. From the seminary manual, it has a quote from Elder David A. Bednar. This is from originally an international broadcast to the young single adult called Understanding Heavenly Father's Plan. He said, if you hope to have an eternal companion who has certain spiritual qualities, then you must strive to develop those spiritual qualities in yourself then someone who has those qualities will be attracted to you. Hmm, and isn't that interesting? That reminds me of our study of Doctrine and Covenants 88 last year. Remember in verse 40 when it says, For intelligence cleaveth unto intelligence, wisdom receiveth wisdom, truth embraceth truth, virtue loveth virtue, light cleaveth unto light. Oh, that's awesome. So let's go on with the story in verse 63. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at eventide. And he lifted up his eyes, and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. In other words, she dismounted. For she had said unto the servant, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. 
this interaction where it gives us just a little hint of this romance between them and a statement like he loved her and that she was modest and appropriate in verse 65, according to their custom. That's going to play out later. This is a great couple. And I think there's wonderful things that we can learn from Isaac and Rebecca about working together as men and women, husband and wife. So even though this is a beautiful story, it may not be the story for everyone, at least not in this life. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf, in a church educational system fireside for young adults on November 1st, 2009, had this to say. Now, there are those among you fine young members of the church who might never marry. Although they are worthy in every way, they may never find someone to whom they will be sealed in the temple of the Lord in this life. I cannot tell you why one individual's prayers are answered one way while someone else's are answered differently. But this I can tell you. The righteous desires of your hearts will be fulfilled. The brief span of this life is nothing compared with eternity. And if only we can hope and exercise faith and joyfully endure to the end, there, in that great heavenly future, we will have the fulfillment of the righteous desires of our hearts, and so very much more than we can scarcely comprehend now. That's a great perspective from President Uchtdorf. So that brings us to chapter 25. In the first 11 verses, it recounts Abraham's final years on the earth. Before Abraham died, he married a woman named Keturah, who bore six sons. Keturah is referred to in the scriptures as a concubine in 1 Chronicles 1.32. In the Old Testament, the word concubine is used to describe women who, in the time and culture in which they lived, were legally married to a man, but had a lower social status than a wife. And that information comes from the seminary manual. Now, the descendants of one of Abraham's sons with Keturah, Midian, are going to play a particularly important role in the stories to come. Keep an eye out for the Midianites. Yep, good point. Also note that Abraham died at 175. That's in verse 7. The term score is not really used that much anymore, but it means 20. It's an excessive amount of math, I know, but an hundred three score and 15 years means 100 plus 3 times 20 plus 15. And remember, PEMDAS, multiplication should be performed first. Either way, as it says in verse 8, he certainly died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And that's another interesting phrase that we'll see a few times in the Old Testament. It's an ancient phrase meaning to die, to pass on, as we might say today. The Institute Manual points out that this phrase, gathered to his people, is evidence of ancient people's understanding of an afterlife. From the manual, the phrase, gathered to his people, is one more evidence of their gospel knowledge. Two Bible scholars commented on the significance of that phrase. This expression denotes the reunion in Sheol with friends who have gone before and therefore presupposes faith in the personal continuance of a man after death as a presentiment which the promises of God had exalted in the case of the patriarchs into a firm assurance of faith. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the world of spirits where one goes when one dies, the equivalent of the spirit world. 
The Hebrews had not only a concept of life after death, but also a correct concept of the intermediate place between death and the resurrection. Nice. All right, so let's go on in verse 5. And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac, but unto the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son, while he yet lived eastward unto the east country. From the seminary manual, it says, Isaac received more than Abraham's other children because of Isaac's birthright. A son who held the birthright inherited not only his father's lands and possessions, but also his father's position as the spiritual leader of the family and the authority to preside. The son was then responsible to use these resources to provide for the family's needs. The birthright was often passed from a father to his eldest son. However, righteousness was more important than being the firstborn. The birthright Isaac received from Abraham also included all the blessings and responsibilities of the Abrahamic covenant. In verses 12 through 18, it gives us an overview of the life and generations of Abraham and Hagar's son, Ishmael. But the Bible is focused on the lineage of Isaac as the birthright son. So let's skip ahead a little in the chapter, verse 20. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister to Laban the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. Notice how Isaac acts for the welfare of his family. His wife is suffering. She wasn't able to have children. And she wasn't able to have children for some time. So Isaac entreats the Lord for her, and she's able to be blessed. In fact, if we look at other clues, we can see how long Rebecca had to wait for children. We learn that they were married when Isaac was 40, remember, in verse 20. And the upcoming twins were born when he was 60. Look at verse 26. Remember, score is 20. So three score would be three times 20 or 60. So she had to wait 20 years. Yeah. In verse 22, And the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Now, I don't know how many women have had this experience, but I can imagine having two babies in your belly that if they're struggling with each other, it might feel like there's two nations in their struggle. <laughs> yes. Notice, though, how from now on, Rebecca will be the one who acts, who God reveals to, who makes sure that God's will is done. She is the foundation for this account about Jacob, her son, who is about to be born. First, she learns the youngest will be the birthright son. Again, the Lord reveals it to her. Let's take a look in verse 24, what happens next. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red all over like an hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. That's what we were referring to before, that Isaac was 60. Going on in verse 27, And the boys grew 
and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. A plain man here means that he dwelt on the plains. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, for those who may not know, venison today is assumed to be meat from a deer. Anciently, though, the term may apply to goats and even rabbits. This may be of interest when we cover chapter 27, so keep that in mind. Mm, Very good point. Let's go on to verse 29. And Jacob sawed pottage, which, by the way, simply means he cooked stew or something in a pot. Something you cook in a pot is called pottage. And Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. Now there's a play on words here. Look at the footnote for 30a. Edom means red. Remember how Esau was described at his birth in verse 25? Red and hairy. We learn later in verse 34 that the pottage contained lentils. Given Esau's label of red pottage, Perhaps they were even red lentils. Yeah, right. And also, Edom is interesting because his descendants will be known as the Edomites. Right, so keep an eye out for that. Going on in verse 31. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? Now, the Institute Manual gives us this further insight. Esau's words, I am at the point to die were likely an exaggeration and a rationalization for his actions. Jacob would almost certainly have succored Esau freely if his life were in jeopardy. The point of this account seems to be primarily to show how little value Esau placed on the birthright. His immediate bodily needs were more important to him than the rights of the covenant. Additional evidence of this attitude is Esau's marriages to Canaanite women, which broke the covenant line. Right. That's a really important observation. A lot of times these stories are told in such a way to teach you something important about the person. So let's go on to verse 33. And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he sware unto him. And he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. From October 1985 General Conference, Elder Dallin H. Oaks gives us this insight, quote, The firstborn Esau despised his birthright. Jacob, the second twin, desired it. Jacob valued the spiritual, while Esau sought the things of this world. Many Esau's have given up something of eternal value in order to satisfy a momentary hunger for the things of the world. End quote. Yeah, that's such a good point. And this is an important principle as we read these stories, because some of the stories, especially earlier in Genesis, but in other places, can seem very strange in some ways, certainly culturally different. Part of it may be we don't have the whole story, but most importantly, there's a point the author's trying to make. And so don't get too caught up in the details. Look for what the intent of the author is in telling us this story. So let's go on in Genesis chapter 26. The Lord guided Isaac and blessed him both spiritually and temporally by highlighting Isaac's blessings. Genesis 26 can help us understand what Esau lost when he sold his birthright to Jacob. So let's take a look. Let's start in verse 2. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt. 
Dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because that Abraham obeyed my voice, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now there's an interesting side note. Where does Isaac dwell then, if not in Egypt? In verse 6, it states simply, it was in Gerar. Remember Abimelech, king of Gerar? We talked about him last lesson, Genesis chapter 20. Remember that when Abraham visited, he was commanded to tell the king and the people that Sarah was his sister. We have the same thing play out here with Isaac and Rebekah. Right. And although considering that it's been at least around 80 years since that episode with Sarah and Abraham, remember that Abimelech, that event happened before Isaac was born. Isaac had his twins at 60, and they seem grown, so, you know, maybe 80 years since then. It seems improbable that this is the same person, although he has the same name. Maybe it's his son or grandson, Abimelech Jr.? Or perhaps it's a title. The Bible Dictionary tells us that the name Abimelech means Father King. The Bible Dictionary also proposes, though, that these may be the same people, but they may not. We don't know. Either way, I've always been amused by verses 8 and 9. And it came to pass when he had been there a long time, this is referring to Isaac and Rebekah, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw... And behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. And Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, of a surety, she is thy wife. And how saidst thou she is my sister? Now, I'm not sure what sporting means in verse 8, but that sounds cute to me. You know, this is a great time to look at various translations. Again, if you type in the book, chapter, and verse into your Google search bar, One of the things that will come up is a place called BibleHub.com. And if you click on that, it will give you a whole bunch of different translations of that verse. And you can see how scholars have tried to wrestle or interpret difficult words or phrases. Let's look at a few. Instead of sporting, the NIV and the NET say caressing. You can see why Abimelech would be concerned. The ESV says laughing with. Showing endearment is the New King James Version. This is an updated King James translation. The Douay Reims Bible, the Catholic English translation, says playing with. The pulpit commentary, I think, summarizes it well by taking playful liberties. So (laughs) all of those words could help to give us a picture. They were sporting, laughing, caressing, showing endearment, playing with, taking liberties you wouldn't take with someone who was not your wife. So it helps paint a picture of what was going on and why Abimelech was like, hey, wait a minute, you guys. Now, remember that the people of Gerar seem to have this odd cultural ethic that committing adultery is just the worst of the worst. You'd never do that. But murdering someone to get his wife, that's fine. Right. And so this is what they're having to deal with. Right. And just one last thought on those verses They cannot keep their hands off each other. 
But notice that in verse 8 it says they've been there a long time. So I don't know what kind of secret interludes they've had during that long time, but they just couldn't stand it anymore, which is another great thing about the relationship that they have. They're a cute couple. So let's go on to verse 12. Then Isaac sowed in that land and received in the same year an hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and great store of servants, and the Philistines envied him. So look at all that Isaac has been given by the Lord, and plus, of course, all those promises. Remember, if Esau had retained his birthright, those things would have been able to be his instead of Jacob's. Now, in verses 16 to 23, because of jealousy on the part of the Philistines, they sent Isaac away. Isaac was industrious, so he restored wells originally dug by Abraham and even dug some new ones. Each time he did, the Philistines would claim them and pressure him to go somewhere else. And he did several times. Finally, let's take a look in verse 23. And he went up from thence to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared unto him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee and will bless thee, and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And he builded there an altar, and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants digged a well. So, one of the things to bear in mind, both Abraham and Isaac have been given this blessing of greatly multiplied seed. Well, in the covenant line, Abraham had one son. For Isaac, he had two sons. So this is hardly the multitude that is being described, but this is still what is being promised. So here at Beersheba, the Lord is reestablishing the covenant with Isaac. Notice the footnote in 33a. Beersheba means well of an oath, or perhaps covenant. Now, Abimelech appears to be concerned that he and his people are being mean to Isaac and recognize that the Lord is clearly with him in verses 26 to 31. So he establishes a covenant of peace with Isaac. Given what we just read, it would seem that Abimelech was more motivated out of fear that Isaac would easily be able to overthrow him as he had been so miraculously successful in his endeavors. Either way, though, a covenant of peace is made. Nice. So in verse 34, And Esau was forty years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Bashemeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. So now why would that be? Esau married outside of the faith. Right. That brings us to Genesis chapter 27. Now, the first 33 verses, 1 through 33, Isaac intends to give the birthright blessing to Esau. However, Rebekah had previously learned by revelation, which we read, that Jacob was to receive the birthright. What follows is a story that, again, is a little bit difficult to understand. Rebekah instructed Jacob to approach Isaac, his father, who was physically blind, and present himself as though he were Esau, so that Jacob could receive the birthright blessing. Jacob reluctantly carried out this plan and received the blessing. So even if we don't understand the whole story, there's a couple of things that we can understand. One, 
Rebecca knows because the Lord told her how things were supposed to be. And she, being a person who gets things done, makes sure that it happens as the Lord intended, even if Isaac is not at his full capacities. The Institute Manual gives us this further confirmation of that insight. The Lord intended from the beginning that the birthright blessing be given to Jacob. After Isaac learned that he had unknowingly bestowed the birthright blessing on Jacob, he could have revoked the blessing and cursed Jacob instead. Right. However, Isaac declared that Jacob shall be blessed, indicating that the Lord's will had been accomplished. Right. The outcome is maybe more important than the process of the story of what happens. Let's take a look at verse 34. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceedingly bitter cry and said unto his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Thy brother came with subtlety and hath taken away thy blessing. And he said, Is not he rightly named Jacob? For he hath supplanted me these two times. Now check the footnote in verse 36. The name Jacob means supplanter or one who forcefully or strategically takes the place of another. So it's another play on words there. Yeah, and in this case, it's important because it's the Lord's will that that happens because of the character of Jacob. Going on. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. Now, did Jacob really take away the birthright from Esau? Or perhaps did Esau give his birthright to Jacob and is having buyer's remorse now. (laughs) Right. I mean, there are times, and we may all be able to relate to this, where we want the blessings of keeping the commandments, even if we're not willing to be righteous and prioritize those righteous things. God's will is happening here, and Esau is only concerned about himself. Going on. And he said, again, Esau is still talking here. Hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said unto Esau, Behold, I have made him thy lord, and all his brethren have I given to him for servants. And with corn and wine have I sustained him. And what shall I do now unto thee, my son? And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Now, quick aside, especially for our American viewers, notice in verse 37, it mentions corn. Well, if you're in America, you would assume that he's referring to what is technically called maize. Corn is an old English word that refers to really any grain. Right. Essentially the fruits of the field. Right. So notice here that Isaac is not unsympathetic to his son, but remember the grief that he's already caused by marrying outside of the covenant and not prioritizing that covenant relationship that was given to Abraham, but also renewed with Isaac. It needs to be renewed to go forward to bless the earth. Now, in verses 39 through 46, Esau did receive a blessing from Isaac. However, angry at losing the birthright blessing, Esau decided to kill Jacob. So this gives us a little more insight into Esau's character. (laughs) Yes, right. Verse 41. And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, 
The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. And these words of Esau, her elder son, were told to Rebekah. And she sent and called Jacob her younger son, and said unto him, Behold, thy brother Esau, as touching thee, doth comfort himself, purposing to kill thee. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, and arise, flee thou to Laban my brother in Haran, and tarry with him a few days, until thy brother's fury turn away, until thy brother's anger turn away from thee, and he forget that which thou hast done to him. Then I will send and fetch thee from thence. Why should I be deprived also of you both in one day? Now she says both, because in a scenario where Esau would murder Jacob, Jacob would die, but Esau would be executed because he murdered somebody. Verse 46, And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? All right, so that ends our chapter, and we will find out next time what happens. How will Jacob be able to find a wife who will be powerful enough to carry on this great covenant as Rebecca and Isaac both hope for. But let's wrap up at least one of the themes in the stories today with a quote from Elder Richard G. Scott from the General Conference of April 1997. He says simply this, Think of the long view of life, not just what's going to happen today or tomorrow. Don't give up what you most want in life for something you think you want now. Mm, isn't that profound counsel? Yeah. Well, what an amazing journey today. We've covered the story of Isaac and Rebecca and their two sons, Esau and Jacob. There's much more to talk about these covenant patriarchs, so keep reading your scriptures and we'll talk more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans. <laughs>